Welcome to Game Over Montreal. It's, as they say, another Montreal Canadiens loss, or I guess, as I say, uh, so often this season. But, you know, they want it at this point. I mean, not the players in the room, not the coach, but the organization is probably appreciating the fact that the Canadians aren't winning that often. And they're just showing a little fire in the belly and getting closer and closer to that first overall pick. And Shane Wright, to talk about today's loss to the Jets, we're going to bring in two guests, Garrett Hole and... Gus Katsaros, how is it going, my friends? Fantastic. I'm doing great. It was uh, a different kind of game, I think. Uh, didn't really have that much fire, we'll say. Like, either way, it was kind of choppy in the first period. It seemed like uh, it was like the shots were tied 3-3 for like 10 minutes. And then I blinked and it was like 16-10. to 10. It, was, it was a weird one. It seemed like there wasn't much rhythm to the game. And I say this uh, as we talk about the Jets, because it seems like every time we, we talk about the Jets, especially Garrett and I, we're talking about uh, Shifley and Wheeler and the group of Jets forwards at the top that don't really play defense. I saw the mention on the broadcast today that the Jets are 5-0 and without Shifley and Wheeler this season. Is there any lesson to be taught, to be learned there? Well, not really. I mean, there was a one of my favorite infographics that I wish I had on me, but I don't right now, so I can't tweet it out, but it was uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins with or without, without Crosby over like a two or three year span and had a higher win percentage without him. And no one's going to be saying that, oh yeah, you know, Crosby's a bad player because the team wins without him. Yeah. I remember the Canadians had something like that and it was with somebody completely inconsequential. It was like Ryan O'Byrne or something that they had this crazy record with Ryan O'Byrne in the lineup and without him, they, they were like terrible, but it was Ryan O'Byrne. <laughs> you have such a large sample size to be able to say this player is why they're winning or losing. I feel like also with the Crosby example, it seems like every time Crosby went out his whole career, if Guinea Malkin was like, I'm Superman now. Yeah. Um, I, there was like the reason why I found that was because of the fact that um, Jets fans used to always say it about Enstrom, and I was like, well, they're like, yeah, they got a losing record with uh, Enstrom playing. I'm like, but they have a winning goal differential when he's on the ice, so you're blaming him for what happens when he's sitting on the bench. That's kind of the key thing, isn't it? Right? Yeah. You, you're they're they're putting everything into the bucket when the reality is it's not that individual specifics that caused the win or the loss. And, you know, I remember the, I, I can't remember the year it was, it, Matt Sundin got hurt. Gary Roberts took the Leafs and put him on his shoulders with Alan McCauley, and then they went far. Then the chatter was send, uh, Sundin was better and he's going to get inserted into the lineup. And I couldn't believe the backlash from Leaf fans saying, no, 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 they're playing well. You can't put him back in the lineup. This is the best player on your team. You've molded your team to this player and yet you're going to keep him out because of superstition randomness superstition exactly crazy stuff that it, it we're going way way back there for that kind of an example but it's been prevalent since i was a kid yep and it'll never go away 
I distinctly remember that season for the Leafs because uh, I was just starting high school. That was, uh, I think it was 2001, 2002. I'll pull out some Steve Dangle level remembrance of the Leafs, which is ridiculous because I'm not even a Leafs fan. But yeah, I remember him coming in. It was like in the conference final and then the Leafs lost as well. And everyone turned around and blamed it on Sundin. It was the year of Alan McCauley. I, I distinctly remember that. There's comments in there. Alan McCauley, deep cut, very deep cut. <laughs> 2002, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. It's crazy. That's back when like Lord of the Rings was dominating the box office. <laughs> All right. To get a little bit more current. Uh, one thing that I noticed, because we'll talk about the Habs now, because this is a Habs show. Uh, we'll probably comment on the Jets here and there, but uh, during this game, there was a moment where it might have been the second goal, actually, the second Jets goal, where Tyler Pitlick got, you know, spun around like a top out of really nowhere. <laughs> there was no reason for him to make that play. I, I was one player. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've been looking at it for the last few games now, and you can actually see, if you look at, like, the differentials per game, like, Caulfield and Suzuki have have been dominating play together since they've been put together under St. Louis. And in the last stretch of games, they're just, like, in the tank. And the even strength production isn't that great. The power play has been doing a little bit of the work. And it coincides with being uh, with uh, Rem Pitlick being put on that line. And Rem Pitlick is a guy that Canadians fans really like right now. Because he's a waiver wire pickup, he's got the sky high shooting percentage, and he's scored some really big goals. He's got some good offensive instincts, but for whatever reason, he's also one of the worst defensive players in the entire league. And his, I believe, his expected goals for percentage while he's with the Canadians is like forty percent or just below forty percent. Which, yeah, the Canadians have not been a great team this year, but when you're treading the line of forty percent. It's not it's not a positive. And it seemed as I was thinking, I've really seen enough of Rem Pitlick on that line. The next shift, it was Josh Anderson back in that spot. So apparently Marty St. Louis was seeing what I was seeing as well. Well, didn't they used to call it the glass floor where it was like the Tanner Glass has a yeah, if anyone has a, a worse coursey percentage than Tanner Glass, they're not actually an NHL player before we yeah. had like Replacement level. <laughs> in Montreal, we used to call it the Blunden line for Mike Blunden because he was like oh, the yeah. veteran guy that always got called up from the, the AHL. It's like, if you can't outplay Mike Blunden, you don't deserve to be on this team. You know, that glass floor has to become a, a, a standard, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember if it was Thomas Drance or if it was. <laughs> yeah. That's part of the Corsi Wars. That was just one of those big ass battles. Yeah, back in 2009, <laughs> 2010. So before the, the war wars. Yeah. One thing I've noticed about Rem Pitlick is I think that he's his stick is too short. I think that he needs to first things first, he needs to kind of put his stick into better positions when he's on the ice because he just travels with it on his hips. And if the puck comes near him, it's he's just gonna end up missing it. Which kind of makes sense. That's what kind of leads you to become a replacement player. Um, the other thing is he's, he's just, his stick is too short for, uh, for his body. So he's bent over. He doesn't have the, the same kind of reach, the same kind of lateral movement. He usually keeps two hands on his stick. So it keeps it even shorter. Um, 
just little things like that kind of contribute to him being less effective than he possibly could be. Yeah, I noticed, like, especially tonight where the Jets are a bigger team and you need to be on the right side of the puck as well, that he was constantly losing body position on Jets players in his own zone and trying to, like, reach in and kind of leverage their stick with his stick over top, which, you know, it can work, but if it's your only move and you're the smaller guy, oftentimes, if they have semi-decent skating ability they can just rotate away from you and you're no longer that much of a defensive threat so though all three of those guys though have that kind of an ability right i use mitch marner as, as a similar example to suzuki who uses his size to get in nice and close to players this way that the only way that you're really going to hit him is to leverage your own weight so once you start putting yourself in a position where you can't you can't control where your own balance and weight begins because you're trying to engage physically. You've got that player and you can easily maneuver around him. So Suzuki has that kind of advantage. I think Caulfield does a decent enough job with that. Um, I haven't really seen Pitlick do it enough, but I haven't really watched the Canadians as, as closely as you have, Andrew. But that's probably another thing to, to look at from those three guys. It might also be one of the reasons why they're slumping lately, right? I noticed a lot of individualism tonight. And I think that's also part of the, I mean, there was a nice boost when Martin St. Louis came in and the Habs got better and then they showed promise. And now we have all the, the promise that we got, but now the season's starting to wear down. So now it's at a point where we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to necessarily put ourselves in a position where we're not going to have like the best off season. And they just start doing things on their own. They just start playing less as a team, more as an individual. I mean, Armia's goal is a perfect example of that. You had, and I can't remember who the player was. He comes in, takes the shot, and Armia comes in, bats it in. So it's an individual play, which leads to an individual play, which leads to a goal. So that's kind of what I think that the Habs have been doing over the last maybe dozen or so games. Yeah, that was Christian Dvorak, and he's in... He's been pretty good lately, especially after the way that his season started. I feel like that's the thing where everyone's expectations are so much different right now because of that first 45-game stretch under Ducharme, where anytime anything good happens, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And Dvorak's had like a, a bit of a relative heater in terms of point production, basically just doing what he did on that goal, using his speed and driving towards the net, taking shots, or uh, being the late man in where he like kind of gets behind coverage and sneaks in to take a shot. So it's been good to watch from that perspective, but overall you're right. There is a lot more of the, the goals that are happening are on individual plays. And it seems like most of the chemistry on the team at the moment is just between Caulfield and Suzuki. Mm -hmm. And they're still searching. This is, there was a comment uh, or an, a question asked on Twitter, essentially, which was who in the lineup or in the Canadians prospect group fit is going to fit long-term with Caulfield and Suzuki because they tried Josh Anderson. Uh, Anderson had a nice little streak with them, but then cooled off because he's a really, really streaky player. They tried Yoel Armia. He worked pretty well for a couple of games and then Anderson came back off of IR and he got shifted down. They tried him another game later on and he was just brutal. So then they tried Rem Pitlick and the best fits probably been Anderson so far, but I, I just don't think they have the perfect player to round out that line at this point. I would like to see them try Jesse Yelonen, but it doesn't seem like uh, they want to give him too much ice time 
uh, in this stretch here because they're also saving him to go back down to Laval for the playoffs in the mm-hmm. AHL. Maybe no comments. Matthew <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to make a joke and say, maybe try a healthy Matthew Perot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Matthew Perot, people, ha- I don't know what their opinions are of Matthew Perot because it seems like he's been out so much this year with injury that uh, nobody's really been able to form an opinion. I think some people don't seem to like him just because he's the older guy with a French name that a lot of the Anglo Canadians fan base likes to hate on because they think that he gets opportunities that he doesn't deserve. But if you look at his underlying numbers this year, like every time I've checked, they've been really, really strong, which has been the story of his career, right? That's been his whole career. The offensive production is not there, but man, he does his job. Hold on a second. One, two, three, four, five. He's six in war for uh, Montreal. Yeah, and a lot of those games were played not under St. Louis as well, when everybody's numbers were in the tank, except for Lekkanen, who, like, I think when Lekkanen, at the time of the coaching change, the highest person in, like, expected goals for percentage on the Canadians that wasn't named Lekkanen was, like, 47 or 48%, Mm -hmm. and Lekkanen was, like, 57. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was just on an island, absolutely crushing it all season. (laughs) For whatever reason, nobody was there with him. That guy was juicing his own numbers so they he can get out of Montreal, I guess. <laughs> the, the, the Tyler <laughs> Kennedy story. <laughs> you know, the other thing, too, is that, that player that everybody's looking at for Suzuki and Caulfield to complete that trio, it may not be there. It may never be there. It's not one of those things where they have to find that guy, right? Because if, if they're looking for a savior or some kind of a catalyst to kind of keep those guys playing well, they don't need that. They can play well yeah. on their own. You know, and with the NHL, it's always about two players and then a third on the line. So I really wouldn't worry too much about who's going to play with who. I think it's more important for them to start establishing how are they going to move forward with either the group of players that they have now or whoever they acquire after this particular point. Yeah, I, I think have to say that. Go for, oh, go for it. Go though, ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that that's one of the things that um, it hasn't been proven per se, but it's definitely... The, the third man's not as important is definitely something that's looks more and more to be an old coaches thing that actually analytics are agreeing with. Um, I have only done like cursory looks into it, but I mean, someone tweeted out today, like the top three um, forward lines and expected goal percentage is all Bergeron, Marchand and someone else mm, yeah. all about the same. Mm. And mm. like, but yeah, it seems to be like, from most of my research, it seems to be that like, yeah, for the most part, it's the first two that really, really count. The third one is like, you know, it impacts things, but you're getting diminishing returns on that. So like you, you shouldn't be really looking for like the perfect player on, on the third line or is not third line to be the third guy, but you should be looking at, you know, how do you fix the other lines? So that way that the first, your first line is being put into a better position to, because that probably actually helps them more. Yeah, I wonder, I think people are looking more at uh, the super lines in the league right now, like uh, Matthews, Marner, Bunting, and Kachuk, uh, that, Lindholm, and Gaudreau, and they're saying, like, who, how can you make a super line? But I feel like that's but, so far down the line for the Canadians right now that worrying about 
perfecting a line with Caulfield and uh, Suzuki. They need to build a second line and a third line <laughs> first before they have to worry about filling in like the perfect spot there. And yeah, I, I feel like the third man does matter less for them. It's just got to be a guy who can get the puck off the wall. I think that's the main thing. It's just a guy who can play with them at their same level of hockey IQ or just make some space, bang in some garbage goals. And that could be Josh Anderson. I think the one thing that holds Anderson back is he's got the speed to play with them. He's got some goal scoring ability, but the passing game is just not quite there. He's the perfect example of individualism that I was talking about earlier. And it's not like he's bad at it. I mean, you put him on the, on a Glenn Anderson type of run from the blue line in, and he's pretty good at it, but you need to be able to kind of dish and throw and, and, and set up plays that you're right. He's kind of missing that element in the skill set. Yeah. And that's actually something that I talked about last year in the playoffs with uh Kokaniemi, which is completely neither here nor there, but I'm just seizing the moment is uh, people were kind of crapping on him last year for not being like more of a play driver or more of like a, a playmaker we'll say, but the line that they had him on for most of the playoffs was uh, Kokaniemi with Anderson and Byron and Anderson and Byron are both players who deliver their offense in individual plays. They both capitalize on a lot of like breakaways and not really passing that well. Like Byron likes to tap in rebounds. Like he's always just right at the goal mouth, right? Whether it's by himself on a breakaway or just not really being part of the cycle and being forgotten and tapping in a rebound. And Anderson is kind of the same player. So if you're looking for your center to make a lot of big time passes and stuff like that, probably two of the worst players to put them with because they're just not that guy. It's not to say that they're bad players, but they are not guys that facilitate like a high end playmakers skill set. We'll say. And how about that? Mike Hoffman, how many times are you going to watch that guy just throw pucks aimlessly towards the net? I'm not even going to call them shots at this point. It's just the first intuition is always just get the puck to the net, take the first shot, forget about playmaking, forgetting about like he is the epitome of individualism and it's just not really productive. No, I had a friend of mine was texting me during the game and it's like every other Hoffman shift. He just <laughs> sent me a text. Hoffman sucks. I hate that guy. <laughs> just like all game, all game long. And I was like, I wouldn't go as far as to say hate, but he is extreme, extremely frustrating. I don't know if I've ever seen a guy who's so obviously talented just mess up so many plays. I don't know if it's about care level or what. I asked us uh, like gearheads an open question in going into the like last game. If Hoffman has like a ridiculous curve on the toe of his stick or something that would explain how he has like time and space to make passes, but then seems to hook it at the last second all the time and miss by 15 feet on like cross ice passes. I've never seen a player like him before. It's so weird to watch him game in and game out and see the obvious talent and nothing to show for it like operating with blinders it really is that's and he's been that same type of player for even before he broke into the nhl it was just simple get to the open space take a shot reload take a shot reload 
And then the defensive element really isn't there either. He's a, he's a liability at this point. I'm not really sure what Montreal's going to do with him moving forward. He's got a couple years left. My guess is they try to pump him up as much as possible next year, build an effective power play where he's a part of it, and then trade him at the deadline, hoping somebody will buy that, right? <laughs> a, lo- a lot of yeah. the Canadians' rebuild is going to be about building up players with some term left and seeing if they can move them without taking a bad contract back. What does Hoffman do other than his one-timer sometimes on the power play? You know, he does. He is really good at one thing. He's good at picking off passes in the neutral zone. He is surprisingly good at that. He just, once he gets it, can't really do anything. He's actually pretty decent at uh, controlled entries in the power play as well, but that's like second unit business. Yeah. How different is this game if Shifley and Wheeler are in there? With more like opportunity to create turnovers? <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Two guys that don't play defense. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. if there were more power plays in this game, I feel like the Jets might have run away a little bit more. But uh, credit where it's due, I thought Sam Montembo was fantastic tonight. Like He was. Just There's a lot of cross-ice passes that he was able yeah. to... Yeah. yeah, those are like, hard saves. Very hard saves. And like he's all year been put in tough situations. And it seems like every once in a while he gets overworked and his confidence gets broken, which happened the last game against the Jets. But uh, again, he came in in relief in Toronto, cold, let in the first shot to Austin Matthews and then played great the rest of the game. And in this one, I think he played really, really strong. So he's once again building himself up to the point where if Price comes back this year, which is apparently still an if because there's no idea of when he might play. Although I have I have a feeling it might be on Saturday. The home game kind of makes sense. But I think Saturday's a home game anyway. But uh, maybe it's the Friday. No, they're both home games. Anyway, uh, Friday or Saturday. I could see that happening. It's a back-to-back Jake Allen's injured. Uh, it was announced that he's likely out for the year. So it it's good that Price isn't rushing back because Allen's hurt, because I feel like that's what younger Price would have done and what the last management group would have allowed. But uh, there's so many questions surrounding him right now. I don't know what the goaltending situation is going to be for the Canadians going into next year. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be one that's going to be tough to manage either way all right uh what was that gus they need to move away from price but how do you do that and that's probably i don't know how you move that yeah i mean it's has arizona hit the floor yet what (laughs) has arizona hit the floor yet So there's yeah. your glass floor, glass ceiling. <laughs> well, they tried They tried to send Weber's contract there, right? At the trade yeah. deadline. Did you guys hear about that? No. The, the league no. said no? Oh, really? Yeah. Because it looked too bad, so they traded for Brian Little's contract instead. <laughs> wow. But you, you know what Arizona was going to do, right? Because the Weber contract is only owed in salary $6 million over the next four years. So they don't have to put him on LTIR. They can just put that money just straight on the him. cap to hit the floor, <laughs> never play him, 
And yeah, they're losing $6 million, but they're saving. It's like 8 million in cap every year. So eight times four minus six, that's what they're saving in actual dollars. If they were to do that, I still think, I wonder if it happens in the off season when there's less like prying eyes, uh, cause the trade deadline, there's a lot more push, but the Arizona coyotes, man, that team bit of a joke, honestly, like I know they're building something and they've, they've got all those picks, but the fact that, that they're going to be 4, playing 000. at a college rink next year. Yeah. To 4,000 fans. Maximum. Oh my God. I think maybe Imagine the presser introducing <laughs> Weber in the middle of the arena. <laughs> well, they've already had, you know, Arizona's got some serious hall of famers that they've had. Uh, Pavel Datsuk, Marion Hosa, Chris Pronger, all Arizona coyotes at the end of their careers. Can, can they just put them all in the rafters, please? They should. <laughs> just embrace just, the stupid. Yeah, you just might as well wear it if that's what you're going to be, right? <laughs> I, I honestly, <laughs> it's crazy. And like their original jerseys. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to me that the NHLPA has no recourse against what Arizona is doing. Because imagine how much money like they're losing in terms of having to pay out uh, the, what do they call it now? Blank escrow escrow because Arizona is going to be playing in a college arena. The amount of money they're losing on concessions, on ticket prices, on corporate boxes. Like somebody was saying this new arena has like four boxes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the bell center has something like 190. <laughs> and like, will those boxes all be available? Cause like one of the things is like the NHL has like certain mandates on, um, on charitable things. Uh, yeah, and, and cameras and stuff like that, which will remove. True. Um, like, so the actual, like, Sun Devils are going to have a higher attendance than the Coyotes. Than the oh Coyotes. My oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, God bless this league. It's such a farce sometimes. Like, I, I wish they would just give up and either introduce a luxury tax or... Hmm expand the bounds of like the salary cap and the salary floor so that you can actually have like let us see what the coyotes are actually icing here because next year it might be like a 25 million dollar team (laughs) (laughs) which isn't unheard of because i think the canadians when they uh faced the florida panthers for the first time this year due to injuries and covid their roster was like 17 million Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, they went in with fifteen players. Fantastic, that's fantastic. Pretty crazy. Now, if they could unload Weber and Price to Arizona, now that's now you're getting somewhere. That's what he says. You guys seem down. up. <laughs> We're laughing. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else was there tonight? Um, oh, the Canadians iced a five forward power play tonight, which they had done previously. In uh, like late in the game, but it hasn't been. I think they did it against Toronto as well, but also late mm. in the game. But seems to be something that uh, St. Louis is experimenting with more. That was pretty fun to see. Yeah, might as well embrace the the chaos and try to some stuff out. Yeah, when you've got nothing yeah. to lose, right? Now's the time to do the experiments, right? See exactly how far you can push that needle. No one truly knows whether or not a five forward is going to be better than four forward. 
That's true. No one's really tried it tried it so, enough. I guess so it, may, yeah, exactly. Now's a perfect chance for them, right? Increase that sample size. Do it for the rest of the season. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, they may as well do two units of it. Have the defenseman real rested after come out, come off the power play and run four D one forward. <laughs> one three D PK. Let's go. There you go. Oh man, I'm surprised that hasn't been done. I'm surprised that no coach has run three D to start like a three on three overtime. I know the See, Canadians. That, I, don't, close. I don't. I don't mind the five man unit like just as a general concept, but putting Hoffman on the point might be a little bit of a risk that you don't want to add to a five-man forward unit. <laughs> they've done it all so. year, Gus. <laughs> That's oh. where he's been all year. Because they've mostly Oof. run uh, four forwards, one D, but he's almost always been on the on the point. And I think the, the, the logic of it is that he has decent puck skills, like puck handling skills, and he can actually score mm. from distance when he gets a shot off. Although doesn't score anymore it's gotten to the point where like he'll get a breakaway i'm like yeah okay i'm just gonna look at my phone (laughs) but uh yeah that's what they've been banking on it just hasn't worked and i was talking to uh, olivier bouchard who i don't know if you guys know very Mm -hmm. well but uh was big in canadians twitter back in the day and i was talking to him hmm that's a name I haven't heard in a while i know (laughs) he he kind of left the blogging industry started working in the I was going to say the private sector, but it's all the private sector, but uh, a a different job that actually pays money. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, he was saying that Hoffman is like historically not even been like a plus impact player on the power play. And I was like, what does this guy do then? (laughs) (laughs) Sound like a perfect signing. Yep. That's the Bergevin (laughs) regime. You know, I got to give them credit. They did sign to Foley and he was great. They've done some things well. They drafted Cole Caulfield. They finally drafted a good player. Took 10 years. Broken clock. Yeah. Twice a day. Eventually you you do something right. It's like uh, Trevor Timmons. And like, I, I had a lot of respect for Trevor Timmons, but he lived a long time based on the 2007 draft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when you hit, uh, I think it was like Pacioretty, McDonough, and Subban all in a row. That's a it's a pretty good thing to hang your hat on, but probably shouldn't have to live on that for fifteen years. Yeah, no, well, yeah, we're paid. Yeah, I was gonna say that that's quite a few careers in the NHL. Yep, absolutely. All right, uh, last thing that I had written down was uh, Josh Anderson scores his hundredth career goal. I believe it was off his knee, but uh, mm-hmm. good work. To get to the front of the net. They just ask how many. That's true. That's true. 100 career goals. That's like one seventh of an Ovechkin right there. (laughs) (laughs) So he actually brought the similarities that made him so good as a London Knight to the NHL. Just never really kind of poked through. Um, He's. I guess a little bit later in his Columbus career, but this is exactly what he was doing when he was in London too. Um, Again, it's a little bit more of an individualistic kind of skill set, but, you know, he can skate, he can kind of put himself into positions where he kind of gets right to the net. 
Um, he's strong enough to kind of fight, uh, fight and battle there. He's good in the corners, et cetera, et cetera. So it's good for him to score that hundredth goal, but I bet that he'd be a much more effective goal scorer if he really was a lot more aggressive in the earlier part of his career with Columbus, whether that was just because of him and learning and, and, and all of that, or part of that was coaching, you know, the Tortorella years and all that crap. Um, but he could have been a bet, much better scorer than he is even now. Yeah, it does seem like a bit of a, a wasted, like, I don't want to say a wasted career because he's still 27. He's got, you know, the back half of his prime before decline years before he hits 30. But uh, he, he does seem like a player. You watch him and he should be better than he is. And there's inconsistency to his game where there's loud Josh Anderson games and there's quiet Josh Anderson. <laughs> and when he's on his game, he is a very tough player to deal with. He's a big dude. He rams through people. He gets into scrums. He goes to the net. And then in the quiet Josh Anderson games, it, it's like you forget he's actually playing. I feel like today was almost in the middle of that where he had some good rushes, but kind of got lost on other shifts. Started he ignite he was he was a little bit ignited when he got back with Caulfield and Suzuki, so maybe We'll see a little bit of a streak for him towards the end of the year here. But you're right that it does seem like he he should be much better. You look at his shot rate, and for a player who has a shot as decent as him, a career 13 or so percent shot, he only shoots like twice per game. Hmm. It's just not enough. Yeah, he seems to be consistently... Uh, I was just looking at his history and his... Uh, expected goals above replacement has been fairly consistently above his actual goals above replacement. And I wonder how much of that is some finishing struggles on his own, but Oh my goodness, that peak in 2018, 19 of his was actually a lot better than I remembered. Hmm. Yeah. That was the last year in Columbus. Uh, it was the second to last year. Cause the last year was the one where he scored only once. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Right, coming right. off that, uh, I think he had some pretty major wrist surgery or something like that. I mean, it was a shoulder mm. injury. But any, he, anyway, he couldn't shoot. He shot 1.6% that year. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> Talk about your bad luck. That's uh, Cole Caulfield through the first 30 games this year. So maybe Josh Anderson was a guy that uh, Cole could have talked to during the year and say, listen, this happens. Although it's hard <laughs> to imagine Caulfield now having a streak like that again. Just the, the, the confidence that he plays with. Yeah, well, that's one of those dumb things that just kind of happened during your career where everything just kind of went the wrong way. And it wasn't necessarily all Caulfield, although he had his own little moments as well. Um, he's just got to learn from those instances. And hopefully when that happens again in the future, because he is going to get into some scoring slumps in the future, he's able to kind of reach back and remember, you know, this is what I did during that period of time. It'll all get better and then just keep working hard, et cetera, et cetera. All the cliches that you would get from a struggling player, et cetera. Yeah. I got a message this afternoon from a mutual friend of all of ours. I believe uh, Dmitry Filipovich saying that he <laughs> went in and looked at, uh, he tracked all of Caulfield's shots this season under Ducharme versus under St. Louis and the main difference that he found, aside from uh, shooting a little bit more from a little bit closer under St. Louis, was the rush attempts have doubled. So a lot more involvement off the rush. 
And that's not necessarily something that I noted, but it kind of folds into what I found when I looked at Caulfield's gameplay change is uh, you could see it a few times tonight against the Jets is uh, under St. Louis. He's given a lot more latitude to stay in the offensive zone and check when you'd usually be retreating to create like a more defensive posture. And he creates a lot of turnovers. Like it's surprising for just a little guy, how often he can get in on like big defensemen and either force a turnover or pick off a pass when they think that there shouldn't be a guy left to pick off a clean zone exit. And he does. And he turns those into really good chances. Yeah, it definitely seems like he's being a little bit more aggressive, but also like, you know, trying more. Not like trying more like, you know, giving an effort, but I mean like trying to accomplish things that like before he would be like, I don't know, it's not worth it. It's not yeah. going to work. Being more creative. Yeah. yeah, And Rated. using all of his skill set, we'll say, instead of just uh, the rudimentary things. That thing about the rush, that that's pretty pretty important too because kind of similar to what we were i think i mentioned this before on this uh on the show he was so much better in the playoffs last year because he could get in behind and just create chaos based on the type of game montreal was playing with that transition and and, and really creating a bunch of chaos in the opposition zone so if he, they continue to do that and he's able to be one of those catalysts then yeah he's going to find a lot of success like that yeah, 100%. I feel like that Caulfield-Suzuki pairing, if they can keep to a point where they are continually creating turnovers in the offensive and neutral zones, even defensive zone, and create more rush chances, they become a, a much more dangerous duo. Not that they've struggled, per se, to create off the cycle, as uh, one of the things that St. Louis has done so effectively is is give those players the freedom to make reads and continue to make plays in the offensive zone, but I think the rush chances are extremely important for them at, at even strength, especially. All right. Uh, was there anything else that you guys noticed from the game that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I was going to mention that a nobody got two points. <laughs> yeah. Baron, which is weird because the Canadians have their own Baron. So every time they were mentioning Baron, I was like, what? I thought are he was injured. They're brothers, aren't they? Are they? Is he brothers so. with Justin Barron? So. Yeah. <laughs> Barron's scoring in Montreal. Because the last time mm -hmm. Barron played, he scored his first NHL goal in Montreal, got mm -hmm. a huge ovation, and then uh, kind of got tackled at the end of the game and is out for who knows how long. Oh, <laughs> See what happens when you score? You get mm -hmm. all busted up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they start paying attention to you. I believe the Canadians actually broke their record for man games lost this year. <laughs> I, I was actually looking at, because um, when I was looking at where Matthew Perot and other players fit in, I was like, whoa, this is a very large chart. I didn't realize how many players have played for the, for Montreal this year. It's a lot. Yep, and that doesn't even include goalies on those on the Evolving Wild no, just, or Evolving Hockey chart, right? Yeah, that's the one I was looking at. They've had a lot of goalies play for them this year. All right, yeah, somebody says, yeah, confirmed. Uh, those are the Baron brothers. Too bad that uh, Justin couldn't play in this game. That would have been kind of fun. But uh, one last thing to end it off. Let's see, a random stat. Suzuki's now fourth 
I guess, all time on the Canadians for most points through 200 games aged under 23. So that's that's pretty decent. Decent start to Nick Suzuki's career. It's weird to that he'd be that high, honestly. But I guess the Canadians have been a team... Given how many years there are. Yeah, been a long time. But I think the Canadians, as a team, for a long time, like didn't break kids in very young. Like You always hear stories of... I mean, this is something that also gets passed down from people watching that didn't really pay attention to like actual box scores when you could only watch like one game out of every three or whatever. But I remember hearing from like my grandpa said that uh, Guy Lafleur had trouble getting on the ice his first couple seasons. And I like look at the stats and I'm like, but it's a point per game player. He couldn't have been playing like ten minutes a night. That's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> Try to work out what the points per 60 of, of a 10 minute player being point per game. That's that is like a, what I would love to do if I had all the money and research capabilities in the world is go back and get like old game film and track every possible stat throughout like NHL history to give context of like how the game has changed, who were the true standout players that maybe were underappreciated in their time. I feel like that would just be so much fun. I don't know how much of a market there would be for it, but for me, in my nerd mind, I would love to do that. Well, I know Ben Wendorf used to do some of that. Yeah, yeah. He used to research those old, old games. And Corey and, if I recall, Jack Hahn also did some project where they went back and looked at some old games. Yeah, I think they did like the Super Series or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess did. there is a market for that. Yeah, I did the 72 Summits, or no, I didn't do 72 Summit Series. I did uh, the Game 7 between the Bruins and Habs in 1979. And what I found was that uh, that game should not have gone to overtime. Uh, Ken Dryden was just very bad. (laughs) He was not very good in that game. And uh, I think it was Gilles Gilbert was very good. And it it was funny to watch watch those old games, and you think, like, ah, it's the seventies, what would coaching strategies be back then? And you assume that it's, you know, very rudimentary. And then you see things like it's very clear that Scotty Bowman had players that he trusted for offensive and defensive zone starts that he was messing with things that a lot of coaches maybe wouldn't even mess with today. It it was, Mm -hmm. it was interesting. Like uh, Steve shut. I don't think I had a defensive zone start the entire game unless it was an icing. It was uh, Bob Ganey would be on the Lafleur the Lemaire line for every defensive zone start, and he was like an absolute killer in getting the puck wherever in the defensive zone and just getting it out, starting things the other way, and get they'd out. get off, and the shot would get on. It's really interesting to to see that like historical thing going on, and you don't necessarily understand unless you were watching it then and mm-hmm. knew what to mm-hmm. look for. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, why doesn't that guy have any points? <laughs> well, because one so- of the craziest things is of that era that you'd never see today is in that game, they basically the Canadians basically ran 3D. And in the overtime, I think it was Savar one of the Savard or LaPointe got hurt, I forget. And Larry Robinson just like didn't leave the ice <laughs> for the whole <laughs> <laughs> Didn't nurse didn't nurse do that recently? Like, yes. During the, yeah. Where they just literally just was it Edmonton versus Winnipeg or was it? Edmonton yeah, he's in the playoffs last year. Nurse played yeah. like thirty minutes a game or more. Just hook it to my veins. Go go. I'll be on the ice. 
Just energy <laughs> drinks, crush them. <laughs> All right, we're gonna end it there. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning it in or tuning into Game Over Montreal. This is game seventy three, so there's only nine games left. It's absolutely wild that we've been doing this for that many games. But uh, thanks everyone for tuning in, and thanks to our lovely guests Gus and Garrett. And uh, before we hang her up, uh, Gus and then Garrett, tell everybody where they can find your work. I do a once a week article on NBC Sports Edge, and I'm going to be doing some work again on the McKean's yearbook. So uh, that's kind of what my schedule is like leading into the playoffs and this summer. Yeah, and I'm coming out of, I'm just looking here where I did two posts on hockey graphs last year, but other than that, I haven't posted since 2017. So um, I'm coming back. Pick up the slack, baby. Pick up the slack. Garrett announcing the comeback is on. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back on Wednesday and then Friday and then Saturday because it's a four game.